TBRI. 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 Trust-based relational intervention. TBRI is an attachment-based trauma-informed intervention that is designed to meet the complex needs of vulnerable children. TBRI uses empowering principles to address physical needs, connecting principles for attachment needs, and correcting principles to disarm fear-based behaviors. While TBRI is based on years of attachment, sensory processing, and neuroscience research, the heartbeat of TBRI is connection. Hello and welcome to the TBRI podcast. You're listening to Season 1, Episode 3. On this show, we talk all about trust-based relational intervention, or TBRI. We talk about the elements of the model itself, but also how TBRI is applied in various communities of care and practice. Today, we're talking with Amanda Purvis, a training specialist here at the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development. Amanda was in our first episode talking about trauma, and she's back today to chat with our host, Sarah Mercado, all about the TBRI Connecting Principles. Amanda gives a little overview of each of the principles and also gives lots of tips for practical application too. So without any further delay, here are Sarah and Amanda. Well, welcome to the podcast, Amanda. We're so thankful you're here. Would you just take a minute and introduce yourself uh, to our listeners and share just a little bit about your TBRI journey and what your role is within the Institute? Sure. Um, my name's Amanda. I came to the Institute by way of a dream. Uh, <laughs> no, I um, I was a social worker in the state of Colorado um, for many years and came to TBRI actually um, on a personal journey, not even realizing that it would have anything to do with my professional life. Um, as a kid growing up, I always knew that I wanted to adopt. And so when I married my husband, that was part of actually our first date conversation was, hey, just so you know, I'm going to adopt. Are you okay with that? <laughs> uh, he did ask for a few more dates to think about it. Um, <laughs> he didn't respond right away. Um, but I, I always knew that that one, you know, I wanted that to be a part of my story. So when, after we had our first biological child, we began um the process of adoption. We initially started with an international adoption. And at that time I was um, completing my degree in social work and had taken a psychology of parenting course where we studied Dr. Daniel Siegel's work. And in that course, um, I fell in love with um, Dr. Daniel Siegel's work. And so I had to write a paper comparing or contrasting his work with others. And so I just Googled um, who agrees with Daniel Siegel. And, and um, that year was the year that um, the Connected Child book had come out. And so um, that book came up. And because I knew I wanted to adopt, I thought, oh, this will be a good book to read um, since I know it'll help me personally. And I can write this paper about it. <laughs> so that actually began my TBRI journey when I was in college. Um, and then I became a groupie and I followed um, Karen and David around. They did um, these ETC conferences and they were in Colorado for a few years in a row. And so I just went and went. And the first time um, I sat through it with my husband, I it was actually in the connecting presentation um, when Karen was talking about attachment and how it plays into our own histories. I looked at my husband and I said, I am going to do this for the rest of my life. 
And he said, what are you going to do? <laughs> he was very confused. Um, and I said, like, I'm going to do TBRI. And he was like, okay, you know, whatever that means. Um, so thus began um, my personal implementation of TBRI in our home. We did foster care. We had 17 different kiddos come and go from our home from the ages of zero to 17. Um, and so got a lot of practice in that way. Um, ended yeah, up but adopting, you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, ended up adopting a few um, and had another biological. So we have had a lot of practice personally and then um, worked it into my professional life in training um, foster and adoptive families in the state of Colorado and then doing post-adoption support. And that's really where our partnership um, with the KPICD came in um, and how I began my work um, at the Institute. Oh, that is so cool. And I just uh, I love the idea of um, the, that first date conversation. That's so funny to me. Um, and that he said, can I have a couple more dates to think about it? <laughs> um, so, I mean, I guess maybe we should answer the question. Are you related to Dr. Purvis? No, I am not related to Dr. Purvis. Spread the news. Uh, no, we used to tease each other that we are related in spirit, but not by blood. Um, so. uh, all right. Well, we've dispelled any um, confusion out there about th- that relation. So it's spirit, not blood. That's a that's still a pretty good way to be related to Dr. Purvis. Well, so. I like to just say that means you you all get to lower the bar right now. <laughs> Yeah, there. You, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, today on this session of the podcast, we're going to be talking about the connecting principles of TBRI. Um, and while we'll we'll dig a little bit deeper into that as we go along, can you just share for our listeners why are the connecting principles so important? So I'm really passionate about the connecting principles because I truly I know that we say this, but it really is foundational to TBRI. Um, If we do not understand the connecting principles, if we do not understand attachment, if we do not understand how our own histories play a part of our caregiving, we cannot apply TBRI in any meaningful way. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I know know in in my implementation and my story, the connecting principles were kind of hard for me, but um, they've turned out to be um, the biggest game changer too, because you know, when you talked about attachment and understanding that it took a little bit of work for me to get to being able to connect well, but I'm, I'm thankful for that journey. And I'm certainly thankful for the the difference that the principles have made in my world. Um, so we know within the connecting principles that there are two strategies, the mindfulness and the engagement. Would you just share, I mean, I guess let's start off with the mindfulness strategies. Um, what are those? What does that mean? And why are they so important? The mindfulness strategies equip us to do the rest of TBRI. I would say like they are the fuel to TBRI. Um, if we if we can't be mindful, um, it's pretty impossible for us to do the rest of this thing. Um, so what is mindfulness? I guess we can start there. Um, my interpretation of mindfulness is I think a lot of us here like being present, you know, being in the moment. Uh, to me, that means I'm not just in the moment. I'm not just feeling my own feelings or feeling, you know, the sensory sensations of my body, but I am aware of what I'm bringing to every interaction I'm having with another human being. 
what does my history say about what's happening in front of me? What does my current situation say about what's happening in front of me? And how am I interpreting this situation based on those two things? So that's what um, being mindful means to me. Um, And I just want to say now, like, that's a goal, right? (laughs) That's something that we're all trying to get to and that we would have that level of awareness in every interaction. It is not um, achievable to do that all the time. So I just want to like let everybody take a deep breath there (laughs) and know, um, yeah, that is the goal. Um, But we are also all living in the real world where we don't have um, the ability to do that in every interaction. And so then where mindfulness comes into play is, how, how did my lack of awareness or my lack of mindfulness affect my interaction? Um, and as a result, how can I do things better? Um, so I think that's really important in the practice of TBRI. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think that for me, mindfulness was a really confusing point because if you Google it, you see like people doing yoga on the beach or stacking rocks or something like that. And when, when I got the point of, you know, being mindful to the why behind my own behavior. And in addition to, you know, what am I bringing to the table in this very moment, which is often my history. Um, I felt so much more connected to understanding mindfulness is, is not about yoga on the beach or stacking rocks, but actually is about what am I, what do I bring to the conversation right now that doesn't have anything to do with what's happening right in front of me. Yeah. It's always so funny to see the images of mindfulness because you're exactly right. Like if you Google search images right now, like that's going to be the picture that comes up and duh, like it's easy to be so mindful while you're doing yoga on the beach right? Um, or while you're stacking rocks with a stream beside you. Right. right? But like really the picture of mindfulness should be like some kids screaming in your face, right? Right. (laughs) That's when you get to practice mindfulness. um, For sure. Those moments. Yeah. I want, I want a picture of a kid rolling their eyes at me. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's my mindful moment or just not doing what I asked. Right. And the sound is not like a babbling brook. It's like all of us parents and our collective deep breaths, right. Of like, (sighs) right. Exactly. Exactly. And it is hard. I appreciate that, that you said that's the goal because it is so hard. I mean, when, you know, dysregulation happens, it's really hard to stay so mindful because oftentimes I'm triggered to my own stuff that, that really doesn't have anything to do with the dysregulated child in front of me. It's often my history or my fear that then drives those next few moments. And if I'm, if I choose to be mindful in those moments, then I typically can make a connected response. Um, but it is so hard. Can I just highlight what you just said about fear? Because I think that is so key in um, being mindful is being able to pinpoint, um, am I giving care right now out of a place of fear or out of a place of love or trust? Um, Because for me, at least um, in my story, the times when I look back and I know that there's been a rupture as a result of my behavior as a caregiver, um, it's when I was parenting out of a place of fear, usually. Um, and and that's so key. I think sometimes like we talk about our histories and we talk about, but sometimes it's like in the moment, I'm so afraid that you're going to end up in prison. Like I don't have anything in my history 
that tells me that you're going to end up in prison. But today, based on your behavior, that's my fear, right? right? And so it's really difficult to be present in the moment with my kids when I'm trying to prevent something that might happen 10 years from now. Right. Absolutely. And talk about being present in the moment. It's like, not only are we trying to, to manage our histories and our lives and our own experience, but but now we're trying to manage something that's so far away that it, that may or may not be real, right? So it's like when you talk about being present in the moment, it's also like, how do we shed the the, the history enough to be present here with what's actually happening and, and that fear of the future, which is it's I had never considered that as you know the future fear in the the past history as being what we're combining to to actually try to focus right here right now, um, and I think that's just such a an interesting balancing act when you think about just the, the both ends of that interaction coming together all right in front of you know a kid who's potentially hurting. Yep, and then that's when our buttons get pushed, right? Right. <laughs> and that's, you know, and that is the button, right? Fear of the future slash, you know, stuff from our histories um, colliding and then our buttons get pushed and we overreact as caregivers. Right. Um, and that overreaction is the lack of mindfulness usually. Right. Um, Absolutely. So yeah, that's huge. And I think it's so important, like when we talk about mindfulness, um, people say like, well, what do I do? You know, what do I do about it? Or how can I change? Or what's the practical, you know, when I, when I get up off my phone from listening to this podcast, um, what can I do differently? Um, And the first thing that I always encourage people to do is um, take note of what your buttons are. You know, what are those things that cause you to over respond to a situation because uh, most likely those have to do with um, us, you know, losing awareness of the present moment, parenting out of our past or fear of the future. And as a result, we over respond to a behavior. Yeah, I, I see that so much. And and like within my story, I know one of my buttons or I guess it's my fears really were that, you know, I wanted us to look really good in public when we went out and about. Um, and I, I quickly learned that if people could see the 10 minutes before public, you know, before we actually left the front door, it, I would be embarrassed by that, you know. And so it's like when I think about things like if my kids do well in school or not, what is the school thinking about what I'm doing as a parent? And so I, I was responding to so many things out of fear of judgment of others or fear, you know, that, that they were judging me for not being what I needed to be. Um, and it, it's all such a lie, right? Like, I mean, maybe they are, but I don't really care. Like right now, what I want is peace in my household. And um, if they miss a yes, ma'am, or a no, ma'am, or, you know, they don't interact appropriately when we walk through the doors of church, oh, well, because at least they know I've got them. Yeah. So. yeah and we all have those buttons. Like, so for you, it can be what others think. For me, it was the or is, I shouldn't say was, this is a current thing, losing control and or disrespect, because those are oftentimes one and the same. Um, And so for me, I would have these really huge overreactions um, when my kids were disrespectful. And I realized that that came directly from my history um, Mm -hmm. and the story I was told or the things I was made to feel. where I wasn't allowed to be disrespectful so much so, right, that I felt growing up that I had no voice, mm-hmm. right? So the quote unquote audacity of one of my children, you know, 
letting me know that they think what I'm doing is unfair or whatever it might be um, feels like disrespect to me because I didn't have a voice, right? I didn't have that level of safety with a caregiver where I could share how I felt. Um, And so that feels like disrespect um, to me. And that doesn't mean that I don't teach my kids the respectful way to share their feelings or to disagree with me as an adult. Um, There's a respectful way and a non-respectful way to do that. Um, But it absolutely filters um, how I hear them share their voice with me. And so I have to recognize that as a mindful caregiver. Yeah, I think it's just, it's such a good point. And I think until we start really paying attention to what triggers us, it's really hard to figure out what those things are. And so, you know, I mean, I imagine it took a lot of thought and focus for you to figure out like the origin of that trigger. Um, but, But once we know it, you know, it's so much easier to change it. And and I just think like when one of my, you know, if one of my fears was, you know, the school thinking I'm not a good and present mom because all the homework isn't done or, you know, something like that, you know, I'm I'm so thankful that I became aware of, especially that one right now during COVID because, you know, listen, we are not good virtual learners in the Mercado household. And so I'm still a good mom. You know, I, I still, have my kids and I'm still supporting and encouraging them and I don't have to take it personally or I don't have to get upset with them or, or do all of that because I can be mindful to, to what that potential trigger is in the background and just be really present to help them along. And it's, it is so hard to do. I mean, it, it, it is so hard to do. And so I appreciate your, you know, sharing the idea of being honest with ourselves as to what our triggers are and then digging a little deeper to the why behind our own triggers and, why do we need to be mindful? Well, that's it right there. Yeah. And I think it goes back to um, understanding attachment. And hopefully you all have listened um, to our attachment podcast that we did with Jamie. Um, but that idea of meeting the need, right? Like as a mindful caregiver, we're able to attune to our child um, and meet their need when they are in distress. Um, and what happens when we're not mindful is it it stops that cycle, right? We can't be attuned to what our child needs in the moment because we're attuned to what we need or needed. Yeah. Uh, and as a result, we're no longer the caregiver, right? Um, Absolutely. And so to be the caregiver, we have to be attuned to what our kid needs and meet that need um, despite what did or didn't get met for us. So um, would, would you mind just um, briefly talking through the attachment cycle, and, and when you say attunement to their needs, what what do you what do you mean by that? So the attachment cycle, in and of itself, um, if you imagine a circle at the top, um, a, a child has a need, and then we you know kind of go along the right side of that circle, and at the bottom, the caregiver comes and they meet that need, um, and then the child is comforted. So on the right side of the circle, we have a child in distress who's you know crying out for their need to be met, and in an infant, that looks like actually crying. Um, You know, in a teenager, that could look like, you know, going to the room and slamming the door, um, or it could look like for an angry kid, you know, punching a hole in the wall because they're hungry or right. Um, But they're in distress. And then we as the caregiver come and we meet that need and then they're comforted. Um, And we go through that cycle hundreds of thousands of times in any relationship um, where we're building relationship with human beings and dogs and maybe even cats, but their needs are different. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> but it's this idea, right? Like we, it's this give and take, it's this, we realize what they need, whether they're using the right words or not. Right. So as an infant, um, when my daughter was hungry during the day, she didn't often cry because she was hungry because I was attuned to what she needed. And I was attuned to her, which means you know, when she started wiggling around, when she started rooting, when she started biting on her fist, I looked at my watch and said, wow, has it already been two hours? I need to feed this baby long before she was in distress around being hungry because I was attuned. And this happens in all of our relationships. You know, you know, when you're, when you pick your kiddo up from school, um, ooh, it wasn't a good day just by how they closed the car door, right? <laughs> or um, and and that is the definition of attunement, right? We can we know um, their emotional state not because they're giving us a description with words, but because we're attuned to who they are. Um, yeah, that's so good. And so that's so a, important in um, in this idea of connection is that attunement and understanding what our kids need what our partners need, right? Um, and being attuned to that. Yeah, yeah, that's really good. And we can put in the show notes a little bit of information about the attachment cycle for people to look at, uh, should they be so interested. The um, the second set of strategies in the, in the uh, connecting principles are the engagement strategies. For me, um, as somebody who is, you know, working hard against uh, dismissive attachment style, the engagement strategies helped me so much because it gave me very specific things I could try to go and do to connect with my kids. Would you share uh, about each strategy and maybe just a, a little bit more about it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's important as we kind of begin talking about these strategies that we keep that uh, lens of mindfulness, understanding that the way we use these strategies will either help them to be successful or not. Right. <laughs> um, so these are strategies that work when we're being mindful and when we're connected. Um, so the first one is eye contact. Um, and this is a huge one in terms of mindfulness. Um, and I'll speak to my own history in this. When I think about when I was asked to look at a parent growing up, uh, the times that I was asked to make eye contact with my parent was when I was in trouble. And so what that looked like was, you know, look at me so that I could not only hear how disappointed they were or how frustrated or angry, but I could also see it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so with TBRI in terms of connection, when we talk about eye contact, it's something completely different. We're talking about the type of eye contact um, that you would give to a baby when you're feeding that baby. Um, and that is this idea of mirroring their preciousness, how can I look at this child and just mirror to them who they are? Um, and so what that requires is for us to be mindful enough to understand where we are at um, and say, there are times when I am caring for this child that I cannot mirror to them their preciousness. And that's okay. Um, but I'm also not going to ask for them to look at me in those times. Yeah. So the, the key here to using eye contact for connection is that we are um, only asking a child to look at us when we can mirror to them their preciousness. And um, what that 
what that looks like is, again, how you would be gazing at a baby that you are feeding, right? Like they're the most precious, the most handsome, the most beautiful. How did I get the best one, right? Like this, right. like we just can't help but do this thing with our face when we're looking at a sleeping baby. Um, and that's the type of face we're talking about when we ask for eye contact, Um because what we know happens in the brain um, is we see the parts of brain um, that are directly connected with attachment just light up. Like they just are on fire when we have that type of mirroring eye contact. Um, and so that's so important um, in, in building attachment and building connection with our kids. And one practical um, piece of advice that I have for parents is if it's hard for you to um, Imagine your kid being precious. Let's say that you are in a really difficult period of your relationship with that kiddo. Um, I would encourage you to sneak in tonight while they're sleeping and look at that baby sleeping. Um, and that baby might be 200 pounds and six inches taller than you. Um, but I would encourage you to go look at that sleeping baby um, and to be reminded um, of their preciousness. And the face that you're making when you're watching them sleep um, is the face that we're talking about when we um, encourage you to ask for eyes and get eye contact. Um, Because that's it. That's what our kids need. um, That preciousness mirrored to them. I just have goosebumps because it's, it's so hard to do, but it's so important to do. And when you just said that, um, you know, we just dropped our oldest off at college and we stayed in a hotel the night before and I woke up early the next morning and I was kind of sitting in the chair and I look over and she was, you know, just sound asleep. And I was like, I really want to take a picture because that's what you want to do with a sleeping baby, right? It's just, they are so beautiful. And that's what I thought, like I was a little triggered back to that memory, but I think it's such great advice because even in that moment, like you talked about being in a space in in the relationship that's hard and going to do that. But even in that moment where I had so much fear bubbling up about what was going to happen in the next, you know, day, week, months, leading up or, or, you know, we've prepared forever for this moment. It just helped me so much to calm down and remember we've been doing this for a long time and she is so good. You know, she is so good. And it, there's something about that sleeping baby that is just brings out um, just so much warmth. And so I I love the exercise of, of going and, and taking a peek when they're asleep because you can see that goodness. It's so good. And the other thing that we can just practice um, tonight is, you know, ask your kiddo to look at you um, and in that moment, reflect to them their preciousness and just say something nice. Um, And that exercise will just help you to identify how have I been using eye contact in the past? Um, Because if you say to your kid, you know, like, hey, buddy, I need you to look at me. And they say, why am I in trouble? right? Like, yeah. That's going to be an indicator to you. Um, you know, I need to up my um, gentle eyes. I need to up this um, kind of mirroring their preciousness so that I can fire all those parts of their brain and my brain mm-hmm. to help our relationship. Yeah. When I, when I learned to shift from the, the fear eyes, which I mean, I am so guilty of the look pre-TBRI. In fact, in our, our house, uh, the girls will say we have pre-purvis days and post-purvis days. And uh, they remember my eyes, my kind of scary eyes from before I knew about TBRI. 
And I just love the idea of um, shifting that to be more of a connecting. And so I had to tell them, I need to see your eyes so I can know. So, so I can know that, you know, we're together, right? Like I need to see it. Um, so it's good for me too, to be able to look at them with soft eyes. Yeah. And I'll just say like my hardest kiddo, um, when I ask him to look at me, when he is not wanting to look at me, it's because he's currently clothed in guilt and shame. Um, And he just can't imagine someone believing anything differently than the story in his head. And so when I can get him to look at me, it's almost like an instantaneous wall break. Like like you can literally see the walls fall down um, and his heart open up um, when I can mirror to him his preciousness in those moments when he least expects it. Oh, I mean, I just, that gave me goosebumps. So like, I just want to repeat it when, when he can't give you eye contact, it's because he's literally clothed in guilt and shame. And that's the last thing any of us, even in the worst moments, want want our kids to feel right. So I, I just appreciate the awareness about why he can't give eye contact and why that makes it even more important to come at it from the, the gentle connected lens. It is really, really powerful. What is our next engagement strategy? (laughs) That's what I was going to say. Wow, we talked a lot about eye contact there. (laughs) Well, I think it's, I I, sometimes I do that intentionally because I know eye contact for me growing up was all about respect. It it had nothing to do with connection. It was about respect and fear, like you said. So I do like to take some time on that one. Well, and it's just interesting, like when we think about our journey, um, because almost every parent has that gentle eye contact with an infant, right? That's not hard for most parents. Um, And yet there's this point in time where that shifts. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's just something to be mindful about, to be curious about that within your own journey. Yeah. Um, But yeah, our next principle um, that we talk about in connecting with kids is touch. Um, And this is something that um, we, we could again talk for a long time about um, in the family setting uh, where we don't have those um, COVID rules right now, um, it's important that we have that safe touch with our kids. Um, what we know is that we require touch. So if touch is something for you as a caregiver that doesn't come um, as easily, I would encourage you to create rituals or routines um, in your day, in your family that um, put in touch. So for example, if your bedtime routine is to rub their back um, and sing a song or, you know, as you pray for them or whatever that, you know, however you put your child to bed, no matter what age they are, that there is some level of touch there. Um, when you greet them after school, when you say goodbye, right? Like that we're creating routines within our day that include physical touch because our children absolutely have to have it. And, um, FYI, so do you. Um, so what? <laughs> I know, I know. Um, humans need it. Um, so how do we either work it in if it doesn't come naturally to us? What are the things that we do um, within our routine to include safe physical touch, nurturing physical touch? Um, we do want to listen to kids in terms of their felt safety, especially if we're talking about kids who we have a new relationship with or we're the professional in their life. You know, if we go to give them a high five and they flinch or, you know, we go to put our hand on their shoulder and they move away, we don't then move in, right? That's not the type of physical touch we're talking about. We're talking about respectful, safe 
physical touch that feels nurturing and caring. Uh, And so that will look different for different kids and different professionals and different parents. Um, But I would encourage you to think through what does it look like for me in my setting? Yeah, that's so good. And I I think that one thing I've noticed and I've heard a lot of families that I've worked with in the past talk about is when they feel like they're getting connection right, the kids will, will kind of shift that to seeking more touch because they know that the the family is good and safe and in a good place for that. And it's such an interesting indicator because touch doesn't come naturally for me. So I have to, that's a place of mindfulness that I have to um, really be um, in tune with what the child needs right now. And, and I think one thing is it's easy to feel rejected when you go to offer a hug or offer a high five or a fist bump or whatever you're doing and that the child doesn't want it right then. And I think it's a good, another good place to be mindful about, you know, that's okay. We can come back later for this. You'll be, you know, when you're ready, I'm here. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And I think it's so important. Um, you know, you mentioned mindfulness and touch um, is to chase the why in a lot mm-hmm. of that um, and to, to really think through um, what is touch meant in my history, what hasn't it meant? And then also what does it mean to me currently? Um, and, and understanding like teenagers at different stages and kids at different stages, you know, they're all going to go through these different periods of change developmentally. And as the caregiver, right. An attuned caregiver, we're meeting their need. So I know my teenage son needs physical touch from me. I know that it might look different than me tickling his back while he's in bed at night, because that might feel uncomfortable to him based on where he's at currently developmentally. But what it does mean is that I'm going to make sure to bump into him 29 times today (laughs) in the kitchen on purpose. And I'm going to make sure to give him a big squeeze before bed. And I'm going to make sure to play with his hair while we're sitting next to each other on the couch watching TV or right. Like, so I'm going to, I'm going to, get, I'm going to meet that need for him in a way that's comfortable for him, not based on what I need from him, but on what he needs from me. Yeah, that's so good. I like the the intention in it and the awareness to where he is. Um, okay, what engagement strategy do you want to chat about next? Let's chat about voice control, Sarah. Let's chat about it. So we um, talk about voice control and voice control has to do with our tone, our volume and our cadence. And these are especially, <laughs> I would like to say these are special gifts of mindfulness <laughs> to be aware of how we speak. Um, and this is something that I love observing um, in families is asking the kids um, to show me and um, let me hear what it sounds like when your mom is angry, when your mom is bad, when your mom is happy, um, because they will mirror for you uh, those things. So we all know yelling can trigger kids, right? Like we don't need to spend a ton of time on that. Um, what's fascinating is that when we lower all our volume, we can help to engage their brains fully so that they don't flip their lid and go into that fight, flight, or freeze. So oftentimes um, when we're being mindful, rather than raising our voice, actually lowering the volume uh, can be really, really helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. In terms of tone, all of us have had a child at some point say to us, stop yelling at me. 
and we say, I am not yelling. Right. <laughs> and that's because they're not referring to your actual volume. They're referring to your tone, right? Um, and so tone of voice can be everything. Um, you know, for my kids, they will either respond or not respond based on just the way I say their name, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> based on the tone. They're like, I'm in trouble. I should pretend like I didn't hear her or I should run to her because we're about to do something fun, right? right. <laughs> so, so tone is, um, I would say like so important um, in being aware of our voice control. Mm-hmm. And then the last one is the cadence. And that has to do with kind of that sing-songy rhythm of how we speak. Uh, so some of us speak very, very quickly. Um, and for our kids who struggle um, with auditory processing, for example, that can be a huge trigger because they know that they're not going to be able to grasp everything that we're saying. And as a result, they know they're going to fail, right? Whatever we've asked them to do, whatever we're trying to get them to learn, they're not getting it because we're speaking too quickly. Um, And when we speak slowly, that can also help, like kids can say like, why do you think I'm dumb or don't talk to me? Like, you know, and so understanding that rhythm is really important to the way we communicate as well. Yeah. Yeah. That is so good. And uh, if you want to learn more about tone, volume, and cadence, that comes from our friends at CPI or Crisis Prevention International. And we'll have some information about that link to our show notes. Um, I appreciate the way you said all of that. I am uh, guilty of uh, not always using my voice well, and sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's not, but um, I've learned a lot about how triggering a loud voice can be particularly at the wrong time. Um, So how about behavioral matching? Behavior matching is my favorite because it's so (laughs) simple. (laughs) And I feel like it requires very little mindfulness. (laughs) Um, uh, It is really as simple as what it is. Behavior matching. If the kid is sitting down, we sit down. If the kid picks the red lifesaver, we pick the red lifesaver. If the kid, but what it communicates is so powerful. It's like this really, really simple gesture. Um, But the message is something that every single one of us is longing for. And the message of behavior matching is you belong. Yep. And so that's it, right? Like that's what we're all going for. That's what we're trying to instill in our kids is you belong. You belong in this classroom. You belong in this family. You belong in this friend group, right? Whatever it is, we're all longing for belonging. And behavior matching is the antidote to that. Um, it, it happens naturally um, in peer groups, um, developmentally, in families, but it's this gift that we kind of forget about that's this just easy peasy. If my teenager is into, like my son is really into Airsoft, um, I am terrified of Airsoft. Like, <laughs> let me just be honest, like completely terrified. He's like in battles and he has a squadron and I mean, it's very serious business. <laughs> Um, but if the magic of him being 15 is that if I get into airsoft, I'm in, right? Like he's right. like, you would never come to a battle. And so you better believe the next Saturday I was suited up. I <laughs> almost peed my pants three times, but I, I went, you know, and mostly I just handed out snacks in between battles. <laughs> right, right. But, but it was, you know, like it's this 
this powerful, powerful tool that we can use to connect to kids, whether they're three and they want to wear the same color shirt that you're wearing that day, or they're 30 and they want to know that you're into their work, right? It's this really, really simple and yet powerful tool. Well, and, and I think we can't underestimate, I'm, I'm so glad that you talked about the power of it because, you know, I sit and listen to you and I understand the power. I have a similar experience with, um, I have a kiddo who's interested in anime and making costumes and I have a similar experience of dressing up with her. And, and she literally, I surprised her and she literally like launched into my arms and I was like, oh, wow, that was really, really powerful. But but, but even backing it up to, like you said, you pick the red lifesaver, I pick the red lifesaver. And so it's, it's in those big moments and the small ones. And it's easy to think like these little moments don't matter that much. But actually, those are, those are probably even more pivotal than being on the airsoft um, battlefield, you know, is, is all the in-between times because that they grasp onto those. I think it's so important. Yeah. I bet you had the best snacks out there too. Well, I mean, the rest of them just have like ramen, dry ramen. So right. <laughs> my, my brownies out of the box were special. That's really <laughs> like perfect. Yeah. Like, your mom's the best. Right? Yeah, that was the goal. Uh, so behavior, behavior matching is your favorite. Playful engagement is mine. So will you share with us some about playful engagement? Yeah. Yeah. Playful engagement um, is play is powerful. It is one of the only times that we know that the entire brain is engaged. Mm -hmm. And so the magic of play is we can teach much, much quicker when using the power of play. And we know that the attachment centers of the brain are fully connected. We know that language center, right? So when we're playing, we're helping our kids develop that prefrontal cortex that we're all hoping develops well and quickly. Um, And play is the magic tool for that. So one of the things that I remind caregivers all the time um, is if you don't know what else to do, like this is always my answer. If you are at a place in your relationship with a student in your class, with your son, with your daughter, with your foster kiddo, whoever it is, if you are at a place where you say, I don't know what else I can do. There's nothing else left. I have nothing else. Always, my answer is go have fun. Go laugh together. Uh, That will launch you into that next level. Um, When you are laughing, you have felt safety. So figure out how to have fun together. Yeah, that's so good. And And that, you know, in my old school brain, I always thought that fun and play were sort of earned or could be lost, maybe not earned, but they could certainly be lost based on behavior. And I love the idea that you said, like, we're at our wits end. What do we do? Go play. Like, just go play. Yeah, that's, that's really, really good. I have, um, uh, I really love sarcasm. And I think it's important to point out that that actually does not fit very well into play. Um, (laughs) Even for that reminder today, especially. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. So when we think about, we talked a little bit about attachment and we certainly have the um, attachment interview with Jamie, but why do you think connection can potentially be so hard for us as adults? Well, we could talk about this for a long time. <laughs> I think connection can be hard um, because it requires us 
And it's really easy to put band-aids on things and not be present to care about the hurt. Mm -hmm. Connection requires the care. And when we're exhausted, when our jobs, when our lives, when our, you know, whatever our current circumstances might be, um, and we're exhausted, I think connection is oftentimes the first thing um, that we take away. Mm -hmm. And so although it requires us to be emotionally present, it also is one of the only things that can fuel our tanks. Um, and so it's it's so important and yet oftentimes the first thing that goes when we feel exhausted or tired. Um, like you said, you know, before, like when play can be taken away, um, for many of us growing up, when we uh, behaved poorly, what was removed from us was relationship. Uh, yeah. And so that model has followed us into our adulthood, mm-hmm. right? If when we were six and we were disrespectful, we were sent to our rooms. The message there is when you dis, you know, when you disobey, when you misbehave, our relationship is in the balance. We are no longer in relationship if you have bad behavior. And the connection principles require us to fix that lie that was taught to us in our childhoods. That is so important and so hard. And I can remember somewhere along the way, somebody saying, you know, if we, if we send them away from us when they're young um, and what do we expect in, in distress, right? So something's happened to fracture, uh, which shouldn't fracture the relationship, but there's been a behavior and we send them away um, what do we expect them to do under distress when they're teens and young adults is they're going to go away from us. And yeah, that's it. If they don't like the, you know, the Mac, the way we made the Mac and cheese when they're six and we say, go to your room when they get home from school and had someone hurt their feelings when they're 16, they've already been taught. You go to your room, right? If you can't talk to me about this with respect, go to your room. Yeah. Yeah. Or, or in my fear was, you know, you're going to end up going finding uh, some other coping mechanism that I don't want you to find. I don't, I don't want you to go to a poor peer group or to drugs or alcohol or, or, you know, driving too fast or whatever your coping strategy becomes apart from me. Um, and so just the idea of them going away is, is so pivotal and important. And, you know, I just really appreciate that idea of bringing them close, but but recognizing why is that so hard for us? And I think you're exactly right. I think it's the, you know, it's unlearning the lie. Yeah. That really gets us. Um, if you were going to encourage somebody uh, that's just hearing about TBRI for the first time or the importance of connection, what would you encourage them with maybe one or two things to just go and try? So I think mine would be the eye contact and the behavior matching. I think those are two really easy things that anyone can do in a moment interaction. It doesn't require a ton of time. It doesn't even require a bunch of emotional um, energy from the caregiver. Um, But reflecting to them their preciousness when you ask for their eyes um, and matching their behavior in a way that communicates you belong. Those would be my two quick tips. Yeah, I think that's so great. Amanda, thank you so much. We're grateful for your wisdom and your experience and that 
that you are willing to share them here on the podcast. I know you share, share um, so much about connecting all over the world, but we're glad that you took the time to be with us here today. Thank you guys. It was a huge honor. And I just want to encourage all the caregivers out there, um, no matter how little time or how much time you're spending um, with kids, what you're doing is so worth it. You're wiring their brains to succeed for their lifetime. And so keep up the hard work. The TBRI podcast is produced by the Karen Purpose Institute of Child Development at TCU. To learn more about TBRI and the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit child.tcu.edu slash podcast.